Hey, Julia Simone, welcome back to the Negan and the Lone Ranger podcast as co-host. Listen, I think I've got a really awesome topic for today's episode. Okay, sounds promising. Lay it on me. Okay, after some extensive research with the old Google machine, I feel very strongly that we can prove that Taylor Swift is behind the super controversial Silica sand mining project here in Manitoba. Okay, you know, I've researched this story for more than a year, and I really don't think Taylor Swift is involved in trying to drill holes all over the province to pump out silica sand. Okay, listen, just hear me out. First off, last August, a sculpture of Taylor Swift was placed outside the Sophie Stadium in Inglewood, California to celebrate her concert there. And guess what? The sculpture was made out of sand. Yeah, no, that's that's stupid. Okay, okay, all right. Well, what about the fact that Tal Taylor Allison Swift was born in 1984 in West Reading, Pennsylvania, where sand mining has been part of the local economy for more than 100 years? I mean, Taylor has sand in her veins. I don't like where this is going, Dan. Okay, okay. Taylor Swift has used the word sand in more than a dozen of her songs, like in her song Carolina, where she wrote, But the sleep comes fast, and I'll meet no ghost." And it's between me, the sand, and the sea. Huh? Huh? No. I, this is this is not working. Do you have anything else? Uh, Fox News says she's into sand. Okay, Dan. Taylor Swift is not involved in the CO Silica project. But there is a big name lurking in the shadows of this story. Tell me. Who has bright orange hair, a bad spray on tan, and a penchant for insurrection? No way. I'm not 100% sure, but with a little bit of time on the old Google machine, I'm sure we could connect the dots. The Winnipeg Free Press proudly presents, in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM, Nigan and the Lone Ranger. Welcome again to the Nigan and the Lone Ranger podcast, which for this week is the Julia Simone and Lone Ranger podcast. I, for a minute there, I had uh, <laughs> I don't know if I had it correct. Uh, Julia Simone Rutgers uh, from the Winnipeg Free Press and the Narwhal is here. Uh, you are now the first two-time co-host. Hey, last time I was in your spot, I was the Lone Ranger. Th that's right. Yes, here. and I demanded equal time <laughs> with uh, with co-hosts. So uh, yeah, well, thanks for doing that. Uh, Nigan is uh, around and will no doubt listen to this episode, and I'm sure he'll have notes on how oh. what whatever we did wrong. Can't wait to hear them. Uh, love you, brother. Um, <laughs> so we thought we would dedicate the whole episode today to an ongoing story. That it is uh, objectively one of the biggest stories in Manitoba. Yeah. It is could be argued it's one of the most interesting environmental stories in the country right now. I would say. And uh, that is the story behind the story of the CO Silica sand mine, the proposed sand mine for Manitoba. And uh, Julia, Simone, you have followed this story for quite a while. I have. I've been uh, following this almost since I took on this role uh, as Manitoba's environment reporter, uh, I had been kind of made aware of the other sand mine, the CPS one. And through that, I started hearing whispers about the CO silica mine, started paying attention to it. And now it's been, it's been a little over a year that I've been 
down in Springfield and uh, <laughs> chatting people up, talking to the to the executives, digging in. So, uh, you know, for those people who may not know what this is or may recognize the name but not not sure everything that's involved, what exactly, like who are these people and what do they want to do? Yeah. So this is, CO Silica is a group of Alberta-based, predominantly oil and gas industry guys, uh, folks, you know, not all guys. Uh, they want to drill into a southeastern Manitoba aquifer for silica sand, which uh, is not like regular beach sand. It's made of quartz. It's got a high, sometimes a high percentage of silica or silicon dioxide in it. Uh, That is very useful in a lot of green technology applications. So at certain purities, it can be used for solar panels, solar glass. Uh, it's used in semiconductors. Our phones are full of it. It's it's a very important metal, silicon. And so they found uh, this large deposit of silica sand in southeastern Manitoba. They started looking in, I think it was 2016, uh, got real serious in about 2017, but very quietly, very under the radar. Uh, and through the kind of years that followed. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot we could go through, but the the long and short of it is they said, you know, we're going to drill for this sand using a patent pending method that they have engineered. It's effectively um, drilling wells into this aquifer, blowing the sand out, uh, sucking that up to a processing facility that they also plan to build in the region. And then, processing it, purifying it, and sending it to market on the rails. That's the basics. So on the one side, and I, I just want to kind of put this point on the on the record, like when people say sand mining, they think of open pit yeah. sand mines, and which are hugely disruptive, yes. dirty, the dust, the noise, the trucks, whatever like yeah. that. Okay. But that's not what we're talking about here. No. No. So the this technology like of drilling the holes <laughs> – and then blowing out the the sand. Like, has that technology been used for anything else? Right. So this is maybe one of the most interesting parts of this whole story. This company says that this method is going to make it the greenest sand mine in the world. Sand mining, as you said, yeah, very messy business typically. The way this works, they're using water well drilling techniques. So this kind of process of, of drilling a hole straight down into the aquifer is pretty common in water wells. That's how most water wells get drilled. They're then proposing that they're going to put another tube inside of, you know, what they originally drilled down into the sandbar. Uh, inside that tube, they're going to put a smaller tube where they blow compressed air in, and that's going to create, you know, negative pressure, suck up the sand in the water. That has never been used for mining before. Mm-hmm. Um especially not on such a large scale. So it's, this is kind of the crux of the issue is we have no idea whether this is going to work or not. Right. Um, water well drilling is pretty common, but to use it to extract uh, something from underground is not so common. So, and, and that ends up being the, like, you know, when you're, you're uh, using it to extract water, 
the, the aquifer is self-replenishing. Yes. Right. So the water you take out, if you do it responsibly, should be replaced. Yes. You know, over time. But it, nobody, like there aren't any examples anywhere in the world where the caverns, like empty spaces have been left. So uh, is is really this just a matter of the company saying like, hey, trust us, like it's going to be cool, like. You know, without trying to be libelous, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, I think it is, a, a, for the most part, a bit of a trust us situation. They plan to put a lot of the water that they extract back. There are some questions about how that's going to work and whether that's going to introduce uh, any new problems to the aquifer. But yeah, the these caverns that you're describing, so... That's a really confusing part of this whole proposal as well. So maybe I'll give you sort of a breakdown of the geology there. I'll try not to get too boring with it, but Springfield, Enola, Vivian, this is the southeastern region of the province. There's, you know, a layer of dirt and grass and typical ground. Uh, Underneath that, you've got a limestone aquifer. Most people in the region, they get their water from the limestone aquifer. Below that, there's this thin, very crumbly layer of shale which is a rock full of kind of metal and metal oxides. And below that, that's the sandbar. And so their proposal is we're going to stick these well holes down. We're going to suck up all this sand. We're going to leave uh, very large, in many cases, caverns. Uh, we're going to do about 300 of these a year <laughs> in little clusters. It's going to be absolutely fine. Um, the worry is... Those could collapse. Sand, as we know, can be very strong and stable. It can also, especially with water running through it, be very soft, malleable. So there are concerns that those could collapse. It's quite likely that the slopes, uh, you guys can't see my hand movements, the slopes. She's making a sloping <laughs> shape. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah the, the yeah. slope. Described as a V. a V. Yeah, so sort yeah. of a V shape, a little rounded bottom maybe. The sides are likely to kind of continue to cave in, which could make those holes wider, perhaps less deep, but certainly wider. Um, There's also concern that the shale, which is in some places very strong and thick, and in other places very brittle or almost non-existent, uh, could fall in and contaminate some of the water below with, you know, metal oxides, which could leach out of uh, the shale rock. All of that is sort of up in the air with this project because it hasn't been tested on a large scale. They've done a few test holes. They've shown that data to the Clean Environment Commission and to the province. Um, I'm sure we'll get into that later on. But it's just, it hasn't been looked at on on as large of a scale as they're proposing. Right. So, okay. So uh, I think probably a lot of people do like the idea of Manitoba being the source of something that is used to make solar panels or components for other, you know, uh, advanced uh, products and materials. Um, But, you know, I guess the the question that everybody's trying to ask or answer right now is at what cost to the environment. So now they did, they made application to the Clean Environment Commission. Uh, the, The Clean Environment Commission is not a regulator. No. It is merely a an investigation body. They yeah. hold hearings. They gather information. The ultimately the minister of environment is the is the regulator. Yes. Um, so, but the CEC process has been pretty contentious, and uh, it's drawn a lot of voices hmm. in. So maybe tell me how if how is Siosilica fared. 
at the CEC. Oh, well, let's wind it back just a touch here. So there, there's sort of two parts to Ciosilka's proposal here. On the one hand, there's this mining uh, approach, this uh, the words we've been using are as yet untested or relatively untested mining approach. There's also a processing facility. They got the license for that without much hullabaloo. That came quite quickly after they made their application. They say the province recommended that they split their mine application into two parts. So the, the processing facility and uh, the mining itself. The mining itself has been the sort of source of all of this contention. Residents were quite uh concerned you know there are a lot of risks to uh their aquifer and the limestone to the water in the region in general uh if the if the mine goes ahead those risks aren't didn't uh Residents didn't feel that those risks were fully understood. They made a lot of complaints to the regulatory body, which, yeah, is the Environment Department. And they decided to call the Clean Environment Commission in. There were about three weeks of hearings in uh, early 2023. Ciosilica made their points to uh, the commission. There were some independent scientists uh, who also made presentations, the residents and municipalities. Lots of folks got involved there. Uh, And a few months later, the Clean Environment Commission came out with a pretty hefty report. And they agreed with the residents that the risks weren't fully understood yet. I think one of the interesting tensions is, you know, they also see the economic development potential. A lot of people really have leaned on that economic development potential sure. uh, to justify yeah. this this mine, but they recommended that the province really slow down if they're going to go ahead with this project, get a lot more information from Ciosilica, ask Ciosilica to do a lot more testing about the larger scale impacts because the testing has been somewhat limited. Uh, otherwise, they they weren't convinced that the risks were well enough understood to let this go ahead. So the, the other part of the risk equation has to do with the people involved in mm. this. Um, and um, and this will bring us closer to uh, my only area of expertise <laughs> in this, which is some of the politics that's involved. But yeah, like there are both with Ciosilica and with the this new entity mm. from the United States, which has emerged as a potential financial partner, mm-hmm. like through a, a like some sort of a merger or mm-hmm. a, a business partnership and a listing of a new company on the New York Stock Exchange, yep. possibly. So, like, is there are there legitimate reasons to be concerned about some of the people who are involved in this thing? In November, Ciosilica announced that they were looking to go public on the New York Stock Exchange with this partnership with Pyrophyte Acquisitions. Pyrophyte is described as a blank check acquisition company. Their whole purpose to exist is to raise enough money to help other companies launch on the New York Stock Exchange. That's what they're proposing to do with Ciosilica. They are run by a man named Bernard Durock Danner. He is a oil executive in the States. Uh, he spent about 30 years at a handful of oil and gas companies. One of them was Weatherford International. Weatherford uh, has had its fair share of troubles with the Securities and Exchange Commission, the financial regulator in the States. Uh, in 2013, they had a $250 million U.S. settlement 
that involved several state departments and federal departments. Uh, They had been accused of violating U.S. sanctions on trade. Uh, They were accused of a little bit of bribery. Uh, And they they settled without, I think, admitting any guilt in that situation. Yeah, for sure. But they did, you know, dish out a good 250. And I think that was, at the time, the largest ever fine that had been leveled against a u.s company for these kinds of violations yes it was it was massive um and it involved you know the u.s treasury department there had been some criminal fines uh involved there there are no criminal charges laid Mm -hmm. but they were criminal fines um and then a few years later there was another issue uh where weatherford was accused of deceptive income tax accounting. So, you know, a little bit of trickery in the books, perhaps, (laughs) uh, where they paid out another $140 million fine uh, to the SEC. And Duroc Danner left shortly afterwards and kind of went underground a little bit. So that, you know, that raises a couple of red flags. Uh, Faisal Samji, that's the CEO of CO Silica, he has kind of had his own share of financial investigations this time in uh, Alberta. He was the CEO of Prize Mining Corporation. He's he's run a couple of different mining companies over the years. Um, he was named in an Alberta Securities Commission investigation. Uh, there were allegations that the company had misrepresented its financial position to investors. It's a bit of a confusing situation. I'm not 100% sure actually where it, where it wrapped up. I asked yeah. the Securities Commission and they would not tell me what the eventual conclusion Which, was. Yeah. And that that's uh, unfortunately typical for provincial uh, mm. securities commissions. They often agree to wrap up complaints ah. without uh, announcing anything or the, it's just they make them go away. They yes. get, they may even level fines, but usually it's, Sanctions, like you'll never do this again within yeah. our jurisdiction, and then they they never say anything about it. Yeah, yeah, I found that kind of odd. You know, the last publicly available information was that they had been given a, a cease trade order, a temporary cease trade order, but the condition for that lifting was that they had to tell investors what they had what they had hidden from them, which was essentially that you know they had received a bunch of money to make the value of the company look good. Uh, But it turns out that that money was mostly going back to the people who had invested it uh, on these kind of contractor, in scare quotes, uh, arrangements. We should say, we haven't gotten, there's no evidence or suggestion that any of this has been happening with the the company's interest in Manitoba, no. this is this is purely this is, the history yeah. of the some of the people who are involved. Trying to synthesize everything that you've been discussing so far, uh, it's weirdly opportune that Julie Simone, you get to guest host this week because even if Nigan was here, we would probably want you as the subject matter expert, <laughs> regardless. Yeah. You literally have with you only a small portion of the file that you've been working on. And I would love you to dramatically drop it on the desk. Yeah, yeah this is uh, this is the dossier. It's heavy. Yeah. yeah. And you have been living and breathing, not literally because you'd get silicosis, but mm. you've been living and breathing this story <laughs> for an extended period of time. What I find genuinely fascinating is the fact that at its core, 
is an idea that could be argued is a fundamentally decent one. That there is potential to do something good here. It's just that absolutely everything around it, if not raises red flags, it certainly raises eyebrows. Yeah, that is the heart of this. You know, if everything that they're saying is true and above board, and this sand is as high purity as they say it is, and they can get their processing facilities up and running, this does have the potential to you know, generate a lot of interest in Manitoba. Uh, There's already, you know, proposed partnerships with uh, German solar panel manufacturer. They want to bring, you know, the largest solar panel manufacturing plant in, oh, I I don't know if it's in the world, but certainly in North America to Manitoba. And they they want Ceosilica sand to make that happen. They believe that that's kind of the key to them being able to land in Manitoba. That's proposed to bring, you know, something in the the range of 8,000 jobs. And that's something that people cite a lot when they're mm-hmm. talking about the potential mm-hmm. pros of this project. Uh, I do think that it's important to caveat that it, those jobs are not Ceosilica jobs. They're no. this other company's potential jobs. Well, and and in, in keeping with the... Uh, you know, because you keep we keep asking the questions: Is this too good to be true? Yeah. So uh, along with the the red flags that have gone up about the people involved, uh, Pyrofight, yeah, and um, Ceosilica, the 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 company, the German company that uh, the province signed, uh, the provincial government signed in, uh, a memorandum of understanding with them to develop the solar panel factory. Yeah. Uh, now they have said to me, I finally, through a, a variety of, uh, you know, uh, m- methods, got somebody from the company to respond to some questions. And they, they claim that they are going to build, own, and operate this company. Interestingly enough, in, in European trade magazines, mm. uh, that have reported on this deal, they have reported that, uh, this German company will not own and operate. Mm. They, because that's not what they do. They actually provide design support yeah. and equipment. So again, it's, um, you know, a, a factory that makes glass, uh, or, uh, you know, uh, actually assembles solar panels sounds fantastic. Sounds exactly like the kind of thing that we want to, you know, do. However, you know, th- it's hard to gain, like to gain a lot of, confidence yeah. about the people involved and that's you know through this whole and plus the fact that the the environmental regulatory process in manitoba is a bit of a joke oh yeah so <laughs> they talked talk to me why because the interveners at the cec have yeah. made this point why are people concerned about about environmental regulation in this province oh you know i think the data really will tell you that story quite well, which is that the province doesn't typically say no to applications. Uh, so how it works, you know, if you want to build some big industrial pro- project in Manitoba, you make your proposal to uh, the province's environmental approvals board. Uh, fun little name there, given they mostly approve <laughs> everything. Uh it's usually yeah. a pretty dense package. The province has some guidelines for what you're supposed to include. You need, you know, a lot of information about the potential impacts on the environment, whether it be air or to right. the ground or to 
you know, plants and animals in the region. And the province has a group of technical advisors. They go through this project. They ask questions. They open it up to the public to ask questions. And then they sift through all of that information and they, this, you know, advisory board or this approvals board, they decide whether or not this project can go ahead. Uh, but there are a lot of concerns that they're not asking for enough information, that, you know, this approvals process is a bit out of date, likely that it's understaffed and under-resourced yeah. to do the work of, of properly assessing these projects. Something that, you know, the Clean Environment Commission has been asking for forever is cumulative effects assessment. So looking at the project, not just as a singular entity in the region, but looking at how, you know, this project could impact the region in the long term, looking at how other developments in and around this project might, you know, create further environmental impacts, you know, environmental impacts aren't sort of isolated ever, no. right? So they want the province to be asking proponents to look at broader potential environmental impacts. And the province has not made that a part of its plan. I, I asked the environment minister whether, you know, that might be something they'd consider for CO Silica because uh, the Clean Environment Commission did recommend it. And, you know, she said nothing's on off the table, but that's kind of all she said about it. No, um, and that's the new NDP uh, environment minister, you know. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. yes that's uh, NDP environment minister Tracy Schmidt, mm -hmm. uh, who, yeah, I think probably came into this role with, a file about this thick yeah. on the on the desk to uh, at, at the least at, at the least, least I hope yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah there's been a suggestion that there needs a lot more rigor uh, I had been looking at the data for another story a little while back and I don't think the province has refused a single proposal that's come its way uh, in you know the last at least 20, since 2016 I think longer than that. Well, there's also the issue, too, that a lot of environmental licenses that they did issue have expired. Yes. And they've, they, even though they have a legal obligation to go back and have those you. people refile, uh, that hasn't been done. So the, okay, before, like, we'll talk about the NDP government's response to yeah. this thing because they inherited this whole thing. They did. But, um, you know, uh, through a series of stories, some of which, involved columnist, uh, guest columnist for the Winnipeg Free Press, <laughs> we found out that uh, during the period of transition from the defeated progressive conservative government, uh, you know, the tr transition to the new NDP government, that's normally referred to as the caretaker uh, yes. period. So uh, by tradition, not really by law, but by tradition, uh, old governments are not supposed to do anything important. Uh, when new governments are on board getting ready to, to officially take over yeah. the reins of power. Uh, in this particular instance, though, uh, we found out a couple of uh, fairly high-profile conservative MLAs, former cabinet ministers, yeah. were lobbying uh, the, the, new, the incoming government to issue a license yeah. to CO Silica. More importantly, however, during that caretaker period, uh, one of them, uh, Jeff Wharton, yeah. uh, actually went to his conservative counterparts, yeah. uh, a couple of ministers, Kevin Klein and Rochelle Squires. Now, during that caretaker uh, period, the defeated government's ministers still retain the legal powers of executive council. Right. So they don't stop being cabinet ministers until a new cabinet is sworn in. Right. So they do have legal power. Uh, they're not supposed to use it. Yeah. 
Warden asked them to issue a license during the caretaker period. That drew a lot of attention. And that is, like, I I try not to use, I use the word controversy when <laughs> scandal is being thrown around. Mm-hmm. I'm willing to call that a scandal. All in favor of I, scandal. Yeah, yeah okay. honestly, I'm, I'm in favor of that too. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm usually very level about that. <laughs> that's, that's, that's right. You're I hardly an so alarmist firmly, I sit so firmly on the fence that you can't see the post. <laughs> but it's it's a matter that really, really did raise a lot of concern and this isn't just red flags this is now alarm bells ringing yeah well end of the podcast rochelle squires yeah no exactly but and uh, julie simone remind us though where the cec left things uh right before the election uh kevin klein who was the environment minister released a report so they didn't recommend against it or for it but they they were waving their own red flags yeah, so here, let me uh let me pull out the CEC report here Ooh, from my giant action shot package. here of uh yeah, papers. Yeah, I've got yeah. Uh, the investor deck in here and then Clean Environment Commission report. And in their conclusion, I mean, you know, I think residents felt so you know, validated by the ultimate conclusion of the CEC, they say, you know, the first line in their conclusion is the commission advises that significant conditions be required for the project to proceed. You know, they said the commission does not have sufficient confidence that the level of risk posed to an essential source of drinking water for the region has been adequately defined. That, you know, that's a bit of a bombshell. That, that for, might be the strongest language the CEC's ever used. Uh, you it's know, certainly in quite some time, you know, yeah. like the, it's not a no. It's not a don't do this, but it is a, you know, there are major red flags here. And we as the independent expert body see those red flags. So they they made eight recommendations. Uh, one of them was that the province needed a legal opinion because there is a possibility that drilling through two aquifers it, where there might be a potential for the water to mix, that goes against the province's drilling regulations and its mining regulations. Yeah. So they were told to seek a legal opinion on that. I'm told they have retained a legal opinion. I don't know what it says, but I'm told they have it. Uh, then they said, you know, if this does go ahead, you need to do it very slowly on a stepwise basis. And they made a bunch of recommendations for, you know, more evidence that CO Silica needs to provide. They said, you know, you need to come up with a monitoring committee. You need to get the proponent to make to draft all of these very detailed plans that they had kind of brushed over in their initial applications. They asked for risk assessments of worst case scenarios. That work hadn't been done by the time the CEC saw it. And of course the cumulative effects assessment. So they, they give all of this to, uh, to Kevin Klein at the time, to the environment minister. The environment minister does not have to accept these recommendations. These are not binding in any way on the government. Their advice, um, there is some, you know, technically the environment department needs to give a written opinion if they're not going to follow the CEC's advice, but it's not mandatory that they do. Um, Klein was very quick to release this report to the public, you know, transparent move on his part, I suppose. Uh, and he, he said, you know what, we're going to send this back to the technical advisory committee. They're going to take another look at the project and we're going to figure it out from there. And that's where things were when we went into election season. I 
I remembered asking, you know, on several occasions uh, where progress was at, you know, whether we had a, a decision coming. There's been no timeline. There still isn't a timeline. Uh, the technical advisory committee is not public facing. No. So I think, you know, a lot of residents are concerned that this is a somewhat anonymous body. You can mm-hmm. kind of dig up who's who's involved. It's often department heads and, and the like. Right. But, you know, it's been sitting with the technical advisory committee ever since. So that that would have been June that this came out, June 22nd this came out. We go into election season and that's all that's all the information we have. You know, the, the new government gets elected and it's still just sort of sitting with the technical advisory committee under review, allegedly. Allegedly, <laughs> reportedly. 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 Um, so I think that the, um, and this is kind of getting closer to some stuff I know, Yeah. but the I think there's a good uh, argument to be made that Seosilica was disappointed in the election result. I think that what we, you know, we hadn't really paid attention to the way the the company, the Alberta company, had ingratiated itself or inserted mm. itself into the politi- politics of Manitoba. Mm. As soon as Jeff Wharton, uh, his, <laughs> uh, his uh, request to have the license issued during the caretaker uh, transition, uh, we started to take a look at that. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we started to see that the company had taken steps to at least get one degree of separation away from decision makers in the government. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think credit where it's due here, the residents had been paying attention to that for a long time. Uh, And I know, you know, as I said, I've been covering this for a little over a year. You know, folks were raising some of these things with me from the very beginning. Uh, From 2022 and, and 2023, the company has been adding... Uh, new board members, and they've only added two. Those board members are both, you know, well connected with the provincial Tories. So there's David Philman, uh, son of former Premier Gary Philman, and uh, Mike Pyle, who is uh, maybe I'll let you describe. Yeah, so he's the CEO of something called the Exchange Income Corp. And, um, you know, it's a legitimate and very successful yeah. business, and they have invested a lot of money in a lot of uh, successful business enterprises in Manitoba. Uh, but I- income exchange has also been pretty closely associated with the Progressive Conservative Party, and not through uh, clandestine means. No. There are, are a lot of people who've uh, had executive roles of the party, who are known to be supporters and fundraisers and donors to the party. Mike Pyle is certainly uh, uh, a, a guy who is legitimately connected to the progressive conservatives. Yeah. No judgment, Mike. Uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, like uh, being involved in, in uh, party politics is a, is a, can be a noble pursuit. Absolutely. Yeah. But it, but it is adding them to the CO Silica board um, is, I mean, there's different ways you can view it. Companies that are crossing jurisdictional lines to go in, so they're going into a new place, new yeah. city, new province where they haven't done business before. So they're going to look for people who can speak the language of the government of the day. So uh, David Philman, who's a very successful lawyer yes. and a son of a former premier, uh, and Mike Pyle, 
who is very involved, uh, you know, in, in many of the, uh, you know, aspects of the Progressive Conservative Party and quite frankly had been selected by the, the PC party government as, uh, to head up a, uh, venture capital fund, yes. uh, to take Manitoba venture capital and reinvest it in Manitoba companies. Yeah. So now why would they add those guys to the board, the, their board of directors at a time when a somewhat complex regulatory process is, is mm-hmm. undergoing, uh, is being uh, undertaken? Well, one of the reasons would be, you know, obviously to get closer to the people in government. Yeah. Again, there's there's nothing inherently wrong with that. The other thing would be if uh, from a business interest, uh, you know, uh, Philman and Pyle, w- maybe they'll have some future business interest. Now, David Philman hasn't really said much no. about his involvement. Mike Pyle did send me an email where in which he said he has no direct interest in CO Silica or the project in Manitoba. He is was asked to provide his advice and expertise yeah. to uh, the company at a time when they were trying to do business here, and that's the extent of it. And that may be the extent of it. Yeah. But clearly, you know, again, this gets you one or two degrees closer to the people, uh, you know, who make decisions. And I think that that... You know, there are other connections yes. as well between yeah. the party. Why did because uh, you and I have discussed Marnie Larkin before? Yeah. yeah, I mean, you probably have a little bit more on on Marnie's uh, relationship with them than I do. But you know, Marnie Larkin, uh, conservative strategist, uh, she worked under Gary Philman actually, and uh, probably best known recently for spearheading uh, Heather Stephenson's. Re-election campaign. Fascinating re-election campaign. <laughs> That's a very generous word. Charitable. Charitable is the term. I'm yeah. doing my best. Um, <laughs> but in 2020, 2021, she was working as a spokesperson for CO Silica. Uh, not the first sort of well-connected to the region and to the party spokesperson uh, that they had employed. But yeah, she was... Well connected with CO Silica, she never got back to me. So no, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, post election, she's. I expect that she's keeping a somewhat low profile. She did uh, when we were concurrently, as it turned out, working on the same story. <laughs> uh, I did get a text from her that said uh, after she did spend a period of time. Uh, she responded to some media questions on behalf of Silica, wrote a couple of news releases uh, back in 2021. But after that, she had no involvement. Now, what's interesting, though, about Marnie Larkin's position in this whole story is that what Marnie went on to do yes. after that, which is she became the, uh, the, the basically the director, the manager of the Progressive Conservative Re-Election Campaign, mm-hmm. and her role as campaign director, campaign manager, caused its own uh, uh, controversy. Yeah. Uh, at one point, uh, Premier Heather Stephenson fired her chief of staff and the clerk of the executive council. Yeah. So that was, uh, yeah. And and the backstory to that was that both of those individuals had raised concerns that Marnie's role as campaign manager there was creep into mm. the business of government. And there needs to be, there, there has to be legally a very firm yeah. firewall between partisan political things and government business. Yeah. 
they raise concerns that she was beginning to influence uh, uh, decisions of government uh, or certainly uh, contribute to the decision-making mm. process and driving out of her lane as campaign mm. manager. Now, again, uh, that that's a theory that, would, that I published and have referred to several times. I know for sure that the two individuals who were fired did in fact raise those concerns. What I have not been able to prove is how much influence that she had yeah. on. Now, I, I will, uh, and this is something uh, that I've only written about, I think, in passing. But as I continue to look for evidence uh, of the campaign intruding on government business. Yeah. So recently, uh, one of our reporters wrote a really good story about uh, how um, the government had tasked education department officials hmm. six months before the election, asked them to do a cross-country uh, audit of uh, legislation and policy regarding gender identity. Right. Now, as we know, gender identity ended up becoming a huge and, you know, really kind of awful part of the re-election campaign yeah. as the progressive conservatives, they uh, jumped onto the parental rights bandwagon. Parental rights is a mm. catchphrase, a soft catchphrase for what is essentially the North American anti-LGBTQ, yeah. uh, uh, you know, uh, community. And so, so, but they had government looking into this issue well before the election, hmm. during a period of time that uh, there had been concerns raised about the campaign's intrusion into government policy. Hmm. You know, uh, for those people who are were connected to the campaign and possibly worked within the government, they're going to point a finger at their uh, computer screens or their iPhones right now and say, <laughs> you are drawing too long a bow. You're connecting too many dots. And I may be, but the problem is, as we've tried to get people to talk to us about these things, nobody will. Right. So in the, in the absence of informed, uh, enlightening commentary, uh, at the very least, I think we can raise concerns about so all right let's circle back to co silica mm -hmm. um you know certainly the government like when kevin klein released the report in the summer before the fall election yes he made it very careful it was very careful to say we're not doing anything on it like we're yeah. not we're not issuing a light we're not there's more work to be done he also kind of absolved, absolved himself of the responsibility and and kind of continued to raise this point that he wasn't going to be the one to make the call that it was up to this technical advisory committee. Right. It really took a step back. And, and you know, kicking the can down the road yeah. is a great political tradition. It really the, is. <laughs> right before an election. <laughs> like, why come out with something really controversial? Yeah. Again, Wharton's actions, though, during the transition period, yeah. raise a lot of concerns yeah. about why. Like, that. that's the question that, that he has made statements but not explained. Why did he... Take it upon himself yeah. to represent the interests of Siosilica at a delicate period of transition, really contrary to the best practices of yeah. uh, parliamentary democracy in this country. That and we still don't have an answer. Well, and as you've said, you know, having Philman on the board, having Pyle on the board, those things are they make logical sense for an out-of-province company, you know, trying to trying to get their project underway. Of course, that's what they want to do, and I think. When you have, you know, these allegations against Wharton and, and his actions during the transition period, 
that's what makes all the rest of it feel a lot more red flag alarm bell ish. Right. Like, you know, if these allegations against Wharton are true, it does kind of raise the question of, okay, well then what else has been going on behind the scenes? You know, another connection that I find fascinating, uh, Michelle Richard is, uh, urban planner she works uh for her own planning firm she did some early work with co silica uh in you know prior to is my understanding 2020 uh she also ran for the pcs in 2019 she says she stopped working on the co silica project uh in the summer of 2020 because she got a job with the government. She was working as a director of municipal relations, advising on policy. This gets a bit perhaps into, into some weeds, but I think this is quite interesting. Uh, one of the policy uh, pieces she was advising on, and she told me she sat on some, uh, some working groups with other stakeholders it was this, this bill, bill 37, uh, is, it's got a very long title. It's quite boring, but, um, it's a municipal planning bill. The municipal board. Uh, yeah. Like it, yeah. It, it basically invests a ton more power in the municipal board to basically overrule yes. local government on issues. Yeah. So if a developer says, you know, we want to build this and a local municipality says, we're not really interested in that, the developer can go to this municipal board and say, we think we have a case here. And the municipal board can tell the municipality, actually, yeah, they do. You have to enter into an agreement with them. You have to allow them to. And, and interestingly, all the people involved in this story, what is the one thing they're really waiting for right now? There's a, they're kind of a great deal of anticipation about what they think is going to be a decision from the Manitoba Municipal Board. Yes. Uh, now, uh, you know, it's not it's not necessarily my job or the job of this podcast to advise the Manitoba Municipal Board on political matters, <laughs> but I'm going to say it anyways. If I were you, I would not issue this decision now. New government, uh, the CEC report, uh, quite responsibly raised concerns yeah. about the work that has not yet been done on this project. To issue a decision now really would uh, compromise the legitimacy of the Manitoba Municipal Board in 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 this podcast's humble opinion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? They have issued a decision. Yeah. So they held a bunch of hearings. Now this, I don't want to get too complicated here. I'll just yeah. try to summarize quite quickly. The processing facility that yeah. Silica wants to build, they, they already have the environmental approvals. What they're trying to get is the zoning approval uh, to build this this facility. The Springfield Municipal Council has been... They've raised their own questions, right? Like their right. their hesitancy was that they weren't sure how the project was going to affect their aquifer, their right. water quality. Uh, and so they wanted to see more information, more data from the company before they made, you know, a call on the, the zoning application. And they told the company, there were kind of a series of applications. They They told the company, no, we're not going to completely rezone this parcel of land that you want to build to the processing facility on so that you can build this. And the company went to the municipal board. The timeline on that right. raises questions, I think. Um, the Do you want me to go into this part? I, I, yeah, I think I think the I think the idea though that we have this parallel process yes, yeah. that seems to be divorced from the environmental 
yeah. issues, which, you know, like you would think that zoning issues would would have to be resolved after environmental issues yeah. are resolved. And yeah. I think that's the thing that's most frustrating. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. it comes back to that. They're, they're calling it project splitting, where yeah. the mining is being assessed separately from the processing plant on an environmental level. Yeah. Springfield, the council said, you know, we don't think that these are separate things and we don't want to consider them separately. And the company's like, well, the province already decided they're separate. So you can't you can't ask yeah. us for information about the mining or about, you know, the, the impacts on the environment. We don't have to provide that to you. The province already said that was above board. And, you know, the municipal board said, yeah, the the municipality needs to approve this uh, sort of a modified version of the yeah. zoning application and they need to enter into a development agreement with the company. So what we're waiting on now is it tried to vote on a development agreement. It didn't really pan right. out. CO Silica has gone back to the municipal board and said, you need to get them to approve this development, you know, a- agreement. And so we're waiting on that decision now. As you said, though, it. This is a pretty high-profile time. It might be best to take a breather. <laughs> I take am not providing any official no, advice. No, but... <laughs> well, well, you're just a co-host. Exactly. So, like, it's, uh... I have no, uh, no power here. <laughs> so Ouch. I, I just want to kind of broaden the discussion a little bit here just as we wrap things up. I think that, you know, on the one hand, we're presented with this brave and shiny future new age of uh, you know batteries with limitless capacity to store energy and clean uh, electricity, uh, you know that uh, that comes from wind and, and sun. And uh, you know, I read an article recently about how solar panel technology has evolved to the point where it doesn't actually need a clear blue sky anymore. Yeah. That any degree of sunlight, even on a very cloudy day, they can still extract the mm. the energy that like so and so it's like for any of us for all of us who are concerned about climate change it's like yeah yeah like I, that's what i really want yeah you know uh and then on the other hand <laughs> you've got like uh environmental degradation mining colonialism yeah uh you know uh you know toxic irreversible pollution and the destruction of ecosystems yeah. and like because none of this stuff happens yeah. without the precious metals and materials and the in this case the quartz yeah um so uh i know i lose sleep thinking about this oh, stuff gosh. yeah what is your like have you seen enough small examples of people who have found a way to get something valuable, but do it in a way that doesn't create more problems than we than the problems it's trying to solve. You know, this is a question that I lose some sleep over as well. <laughs> you know, we have decided that fossil fuels we can't rely on those anymore. We need to switch to electric everything, and as you said, you can't do that without these minerals. And I think that the important perspective there is, yeah, you're swapping one extractive industry for another. Like, you're not going to be reducing the amount of extractive activities that you're that you're up to. You're just switching what products you're you're looking to to take out of the ground. Um, whether that can be done better is really it's still up in the air. Like, yeah. this is such a fast changing time for 
for these, you know, energy industries, for mining industries, uh, I know that the mining industry here in Manitoba, they are quite adamant that they are constantly improving their processes. And it makes sense that, you know, they have stakeholders to to report back to. If they're making a big mess environmentally, they're not going to be successful. And so it is in their best interest to try to find sure. cleaner ways to do these things. Um the mining industry in Manitoba has been on a massive critical minerals push. As everywhere. As yeah. as everywhere. You know, I'm seeing like ads on my Twitter feed, <laughs> like fancy Manitoba critical mineral mining ads. Um, silica is not a critical mineral, but it's not in Canada at least, but it is in the U.S. It, it is in Australia. It's getting closer to, I'm sure, getting that designation here. I... I don't I it's so hard to to say whether this shift is going to be sort of a net positive, right? Yeah. Like mining is a messy business. Uh it is not particularly well regulated. The province doesn't have resources to follow up on these mines to keep track yeah. of, you know, whether they are following the standards that get set out in their licenses, whether they are cleaning up after themselves. And so there is just an immense amount of risk to mining in general. I mean, this is a mining province. We've had a lot of mining throughout the entire history of this province. Um, and there have been some projects that are relatively yeah, relatively successful and others that create a, a really big mess. Um, this project being so close to Winnipeg, being in the yeah. south, being in a fast growing area like the, the bedroom communities a of Winnipeg, rapidly yeah. developing bedroom community yeah. that puts a lot more spotlight and attention on yeah. this project and on any potential mistakes or accidents that would happen than anything you know further north like you know the Wapinagao sand mine it's the same sandbar they're after the same material but we're not you know talking about it in the same way um in part because it's a little bit further north a little bit further away yeah it's you know it, it's kind of an impossible question to answer at what yeah. the at what cost question yeah. um i think ultimately people who who work in you know environmental fields they think that we need to be investing a lot more in reducing our consumption rather than just switching to different no, exactly. forms right and yeah. that's that's not something that you know we've seen as much leadership on as perhaps the push for mining and in terms of leadership the leadership that we're looking for now is going to come from a new premier and a yes. new government. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but they have been remarkably, maybe alarmingly open-minded. I don't, I don't want to say that it, being open-minded is the wrong posture mm. to take, but am I wrong in assuming that, that Premier Wab Kanu and his government have kind of sort of adopted the same language and posture as the previous government? Like they seem... Like they really want to make this happen, yeah. but you know, the, you talk to the new environment minister, uh, Minister Schmidt, and uh, she really raised some eyebrows when she talked about the cumulative effects analysis, which should be pro forma yeah. for this kind of project. It really, awesome. yeah, you know, after we get, you know, after we get a license issue, we we can. There's lots we'll of time to do that. That, uh, that that really raised some flags, didn't it? It really did. Uh, there's been a sort of I've been sort of struggling with a, maybe a little bit of a disconnect between what's coming out of the environment department and what the premier has said. Um, the premier 
effectively told one of our colleagues, you know, this is going to happen. This is going to yeah. go ahead. It's just how. How do we ensure that it's safe and, and so on? Which, yeah, as you said, is very much the posture that I think the previous government had been giving off, right? Yeah. Um, this government has been very keen on mining as well, just across the board, critical mineral mining especially. I think well, people are seeing this as our... They have a stranglehold on northern Manitoba. Absolutely. Where mining is sometimes the only sometimes industry. Sometimes blood, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, there's... There seems to be an indication that they want this project. Uh, but yeah, what really raised red flags for me is that, you know, the Clean Environment Commission did their due diligence and said, yeah. we need way more information. Yeah. And the province has effectively said, you know, Minister Schmidt has effectively said, we can we can figure out getting that information yeah. once we have the license. Or maybe we'll make that getting that information part of the license. Yeah. And... I think that that, you know, it's not really my job to give opinions, but hey, I'm I'm co-hosting a yeah, podcast today. Yeah, um, fill your boots. Yeah, yeah well, yeah. you know, I think that there's there's a lot of risk inherent in that. I think that yeah. some of those uh, draft plans, you know, they included the closure plans and the the waste management plans and the emergency response plans because with something this new, you know, what is the policy going to be if there's an accident? Which I'm sh- you know, it seems quite yeah. likely that something might happen, right? You know, this is a new a new process, and we don't know what their plan is if something goes wrong. We don't right. know what they're going to do to, you know, they plan to close these wells after they've extracted, you know, the, the sand they want from them. So they're going to drill, you know, drill and close 300 wells in a year. <laughs> there are risks inherent with that. You know, every drill yeah. hole invites risk of contamination. You know, and- I, I keep having this nightmare where it's the scene from The Dark Knight where they like set off the bomb below the football stadium <laughs> and the whole thing just, you know, like I, and that may the be really term super for that is subsidence and yes. it is a concern. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure that I, I like that image better now that I know that it's called subsidence. <laughs> I just like it is, you know, the dark night. Anyways, yeah. the, uh, you know, and that, that could be extremely unfair. Like the, the fact is like in my life, I've traveled hundreds of, meters below the surface in a gold mine Mm. like i like and it's freaky you know Mm. like it's really but you know we have been living and extracting things from deep below the surface of of the the planet for a very long time and and it has had an environmental toll yeah uh but you know like it it's i i think i am like a lot of people i love to find out that there's a way to do this safely yeah you know i i just I, I have less confidence in a lot of the people that are trying to come up with that solution. Yeah, I think that that, that really does reflect the perspective of so many people who, who live in the region and who have been following this with, you know, with concern is, you know, if we can do this, if we can do it properly yeah. and safely and we can mitigate the risks, there's potentially... Let's do it. There's yeah. potentially yeah. so much good that could come yeah. of it. But with something that's so new, you know, there's been there have been so many little tiny shifts in the proposal and the plan <laughs> yeah. over the years, which to some degree makes sense. They're proposing something that's not really been tried. 
but it doesn't inspire confidence that, you know, we know how we're going to do this and we're going to get it done safely. You know, there's so much information still outstanding without that security and that confidence that either the proponent has done every bit of due diligence they can to make this safe or the government has done every bit of due diligence they can to make this safe and to make sure it's going to be followed up on and monitored. Uh, it's hard to, it's hard to want to take the risk. You know, if, yeah. if people's drinking water is at stake, yeah, that's something that you, you can't really fool around with. Right. No, no, not, not in a province. I mean, we're blessed with a so lot of, water. you know, so much great, uh, you know, safe water. Yeah. But yeah, messing with that, uh, would seem to be, uh, the wrong idea. Yeah. Um, so, uh, surveillance and monitoring and, uh, yeah. So if not by the government, I'm pretty sure the Winnipeg Free Press and the Narwhal will continue to <laughs> surveil and, and monitor uh, and what's going Pegasus, on. Uh, First Nation as well is going to yeah. be doing a little bit of that monitoring for them. So yeah. I think it's a, a positive yeah. uh, bit of news in that side. Julia Simone, uh, thank you for coming in and doing the brain dump on this uh, really important story because it, it really is like, I think the, uh, I think this podcast should become required listening for anybody at the free <laughs> press who, who needs to write a CO Silica story. <laughs> uh, so thank you, uh, very much for this. And, uh, you know, uh, I have a funny feeling like if we got the same reaction to the, the podcast last time you co-hosted that, uh, you know, you and Adam could be doing this po podcast, <laughs> you know, the, the Negan and the Lone Ranger will be sent off into the sunset. Uh, you know, thanks for starting things off. No, it's and, okay. We're the B team. Yeah, the, exactly. We're the B team. We're the super subs. The super exactly. subs. Yeah. Signaling to the bullpen for subject matter experts. Now, if folks haven't read the recently published piece that you put out, Julie yes. Simone, they should read it. It gives, it essentially gives broader context and a little bit of a deeper dive into everything that's been discussed here today. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you can read it on the narwhal.ca. You can also read it on the Winnipeg Free Press. Oh, very good. Yes. Yep. I got to shout them out as well. <laughs> and on Mondays now, you can read it without a paywall. Oh, yes. I did see that's that. That's right. So, uh, Get, you know, get ramped up for Mondays. Uh, it is paywall free Monday. And, uh, that is a chance if you want to catch up with some investigative, uh, work uh, that Julia Simone's done on this story or any other great story. I publish a column on Mondays, by the way. WinnipegFreePress.com. Wonderful yep. place to check out what is happening in our community. Our boss uh, is going to love this. <laughs> well, we, I have to do something that he loves on this because it's, so I've established in previous episodes, we do a lot that he doesn't like. Although you didn't have to beat me once. I've been well behaved. We've got him yes. tied to the chair. Tied mm. to the chair. Nigan uh, Sinclair, my brother in podcasting, will, will be back. He would want me to say thank you to the Winnipeg Free Press. Uh, for supporting the podcast. Thank you to CJNU and Adam Glenn for supporting the podcast. Miigwech to, and uh, thank you to the audience for turning in. And uh, who knows, maybe again, we'll come back and co-host with me again in the future. One Fingers day. crossed. One day. One Here's day. hoping. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. I love to chat about this story and uh, my inbox is always open if somebody knows something that we don't because uh, we are continuing to look for more on this one. Absolutely. Absolutely.